I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm Maris Kreisman. I'm so happy to be sitting here with my friend Teddy Wayne, who is the author of Loner, The Love Song of Johnny Valentine, and Capitoil. He is the winner of a Whiting Writers Award. He is a regular contributor to The New Yorker, The New York Times, and McSweeney's, and his latest novel is called Apartment. Welcome. Thank you so much. So I love Apartment for many reasons, but let's just start with like, the great nostalgia for the 90s the you i mean you you have so many good details especially nostalgia now i think we're all yes craving a time when things seem simpler even though the book is i think a sort of purported attempt to look at what possibly led to today's conditions right it's still nice to escape from 2020 and you you make that very clear in the book like there isn't you know it was pre I don't want to say Monica Lewinsky because I want to put the blame on Bill Clinton where it lies. <laughs> yeah. um, but it was pre that scandal and it was at a time when things were relatively calm. Relative. I mean, post OJ, pre Monica Lewinsky, post Berlin Wall, which is good, pre World Trade Center, which is good that it was pre bad yeah, that I, happened. Yes. <laughs> but so it, it was a kind of like a, a decade that's a little bit. It's easy to nostalgize it because it was the last okay decade if we're thinking about what's happened since then. Yeah. Um, and But because of its okayness, it sort of is kind of unexciting in some – this is not a good recommendation for the book. It's an <laughs> unexciting book. No, it was so exciting to me. But it I, was when you could smoke in bars. Yes, smoke in bars. Um, take the nine train. Or the – yes, the nine train, which skip stopped with the one train, which I took a lot in the 90s. Yeah. Um yeah, it, it, uh, 90s is a strange decade. It's a little bit amorphous. If we think about every other decade before that and since, we have a very distinct idea, I think, of what the decade uh, is comprised of. Um, you can sort of think of the 80s as like this glitzy capitalist mm -hmm. decade. 70s is a sort of lost uh, Nixon, 
Carter Malay's decade, 60s is very obviously countercultural, 50s yeah. is sort of repression. 90s, it's harder to say what it was. It's the, um, you mentioned the um, sideburns. Yeah, it's, it's a sideburns. sideburn decade. <laughs> but not the original one. It's the, it's the throwback. It's, well, that's, there's a line in the book about how yeah. nostalgia operates in 20 year um, mm-hmm. cycles, uh, mostly because when you're, you're most influenced by mass culture when you're 13 to 18, yep. say. And then 20 years later, those 33 to 38-year-olds are suddenly in charge of mass culture. Yep. And so they go back, which is why we're seeing all these 90s retreads now, mm-hmm. including maybe Apartment. Um, but that sideburns thing, it's, just, it's, it's put there sort of as just window dressing. But there actually was a lot about masculinity and femininity converging in that decade. Yeah. Uh, Start of sideburns now to know. But then I, there's a whole list of the sort of like matinee idols of the era and there's a lot of discussion in the book. Where one page, not a lot of discussion. <laughs> it's all. It's I mean, all about your book this. is pretty short, so it's it's, it's short. It's... Forty-three pages on Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> there's one page on DiCaprio and Kate Moss, <laughs> and their androgyny, their androgynous looks of the time, at least. And even your character Billy says that Claire Danes and Leo in Romeo and Juliet kind of look like each other. I, well, I, I, it's a little ambiguous, but I think he means oh. DiCaprio and Kate Moss. He's looking at another poster. Oh, got it. But got it, it could got be it. read the wrong way. But yeah, maybe it is. I don't know. But either, either way, <laughs> yeah, you, you either know way, better than I. But who knows? Either way, that a lot of men of the time were sort of threatened by DiCaprio's androgynous looks. He's actually become lately this like buffed up, yes, action movie star, um, an entirely masculine yeah. kind of presence. And right? and I guess I actually when I watched Once Upon a Time in America, I thought yeah. of it as a little similar to this book, mm-hmm. in that it's, it's a, a kind of bromance, if you want to call it that. And nostalgic. And, but Brad Pitt's character, who's also, I think, name-checked in this, maybe maybe not. I just thought about yes, Brad Pitt. Yes, I think he is. I think he is. He was with Gwyneth at the time. Yes. Yeah, okay, there's one reference to him. <laughs> he was this sort of uber-masculine, at least in, in Once Upon a Time in America. But in the 90s, he was also this kind of like sort of obviously incredibly attractive man, but like had a touch with his feminine side, you would say. Like Thelma and Louise, he felt like this sensitive oh, yeah. um, guy. So uh, different from the 80s, the steroidal action stars of Schwarzenegger and Stallone and Bruce Willis. Yeah. And then you saw this very big shift in masculinity. He did fly fishing. He <laughs> yeah. had really long locks in that other movie. Yeah. His, and like the, the weird thing to comment on, but like the men's hair got very womanly in that decade for a little while mm. minus like george clooney's caesar cut oh no otherwise there are a lot of like flowing locks for men yeah i loved that if you like podcasts like the maris review then you'll love kobo audiobooks listening to audiobooks let you fit more reading time into your life even when i'm stress eating or cleaning i love to listen to an audiobook to get me out of my own head there are two great ways to save. You can start an audiobook subscription and get your first book free. The book is yours to keep even if you cancel. And then every month afterwards, pay just $9.99 and you can choose an audiobook from the Kobo catalog, regardless of the price. Some audiobooks can cost upwards of $35 or $40, so a Kobo subscription is the best way to save money every single month. Or two, you can use the code MARIS40 to get 40% off one of their select audiobooks curated by Kobo's audiobook experts. To get started, visit kobo.com slash MARISREVIEW. Start listening to Kobo audiobooks today. 
Once again, that's Kobo.com slash Maris Review. So we're in the 90s in New York City, and we are at an MFA program. And you, you're explicit. It's Columbia. Mm-hmm. We have some friends who've gone, gone to Columbia, right? I, of course, yeah. yeah. I, I taught there a little bit. I did not go mm-hmm. there myself. I went to Wash right. University in St. Louis a decade or so later. So it's not based on my own experience at all. Right. Um, but I wanted to use a New York City-based program. Um, it was important to use one that just sort of had this prestige that Billy, yes. the the roommate character, who himself is from the Midwest, would feel a little bit uncomfortable or out of fish out of water in. Um, so I chose Columbia. Yeah. First of all, you're you're very good at skewering that culture, the MFA culture. But but tell me a little bit about, you know, you have this nameless narrator. Mm-hmm. At the beginning of the book, he makes the decision to write about another narrator who was also nameless. How do you step away from the, how do you write about the art of writing? The, the art of writing or the... Or the uh, bullshit that comes with yeah. writing, I guess, is is better. You know, the... The MFA culture is sort of low-hanging fruit. I didn't want to write a satire of, right. of that. And it's both low-hanging fruit and also kind of who cares. Like, this is not that important a thing. So I, I was careful not to spend too much time in the MFA classroom. There's yeah. like a couple of short scenes. Um, I was careful not to have too much time of them waxing on about writing, too, because <laughs> I'm also leery of those kind of books. Yeah. Um. So I, I thought... What I was at least hoping for, all right, this narrator is attempting to be, attempting to be a writer and the standard coming-of-age Building's Roman mm-hmm. journey is he's going to become a writer by the end and he's going to learn what's great about himself. And I was looking more, oh, what if he's like a truly frustrated writer, not the one we often see where it's a published novelist stalled on his second book kind of frustrated writer, but a right. guy starting out who's encountering the fact that he might not be very good and then he's in close contact with this guy who is extremely supremely gifted um so my my hope was all right talk about writing the bullshit of writing but do it through the lens of a stymied writer and that might sort of mitigate the self-indulgence of it yeah and and you like he is you're aware that your narrator is privileged Mm -hmm. and upper middle class and probably like we're at a time now when we talk about drinking male tears and and you you were anticipating that a bit. I was. And also another reason to sort of set it in the 90s, uh, this book wouldn't work for many reasons if it were set today. Uh, just there's too much that would be different about it and just wouldn't nothing would function. But his acknowledgement of his class privilege, at least, would be much more freighted and fraught right now. Um, he sort of couldn't get past the first page with it in, in his moment. 90s, he was sort of just becoming aware of it, this right. kind of character. Um, and it was a little bit more tolerable, I think, and tolerable for maybe the reader now to deal with the character who's aware of this about himself. Yes. And th- the thing that 100% has to be in the 90s, I think, um, is your portrayal of the of so much casual homophobia everywhere that mm-hmm. you get from every angle in the 90s. And, like, it's really only in the past 
couple of years that we're going back and thinking like maybe must see TV was not okay. <laughs> <laughs> it was the source of all our downfall. Yeah, that's again to go back to the masculinity thing. It, it these ideas about gender that really flowed out of academia in the eighties and and sort of infiltrated mass culture, I'd say in the nineties and beyond, are now so commonplace that you can know terms of of art of gender without ever having read a Judith Butler book or something right. like that. In the 90s, there'd be someone like the narrator would be dimly aware of these things, or somewhat aware. Billy, who's from Illinois and from a working-class background and has only been friends with kind of bros of the time, mm -hmm. um, and this is all new to him, has no real understanding of these, of these concepts or at least is repelled by them from what he's, from what he's exposed to. And he himself sort of latches on to a group of guys at Columbia eventually who are in the same sort of boat. And he's okay with being repelled by them. He's not questioning himself. He's not trying to be better. He's not – He. that's just how he is and how it was. Yeah. I, I mean, it's remarkable to think I graduated high school in 97. There were, I'm pretty sure, no openly gay students in, yeah. my, in my class. We had one. But 10 years later, that would yeah. have been very different. 20 Absolutely. years later, completely different. So – it was a massive sort of inflection point for this sort of thing. And um, it's incredible how fast it happened. It, it's the one thing that I can constantly point to and say, like, there's still progress being made. Yeah, it, it, it's heartening to see. And it took, you know, <clears throat> sorry, it took uh, a few like pop cultural figures to help move things. It yep. took a lot of political groups organizing. Um, but it was a radical shift in ways that are at least in my lifetime, I can't think of other things that have changed no. so suddenly that um, we now have an openly gay presidential candidate. Inconceivable, 1996. Absolutely. So talk to me a little bit about Billy and the narrator's relationship. Um, Billy, of course, is is he sort of like you and I are part of a, a similar quote unquote scene in New York City where we think about what people in or, or we're supposed to think about what people in the middle of the country think and what we know and they don't and what they know and we don't. Um, and so, for instance, in in the novel, Billy doesn't know who David Foster Wallace is even though he's just put out Infinite Jest. And he's also from Illinois. And too. he's also from Illinois. Yeah, you know, it's it's hard thing it's a hard thing to discuss without sounding myself like a sort of clueless coastal Right. Elite, right. Um which I at least tried to make part of the narrator's character that he's got this self-consciousness about being a member of the elite intelligentsia. And Billy is this pull yourself up by your bootstraps guy from the heartland. Um, a couple of things I was thinking about with their, their sort of clash, and it's it's muted. So I'd say one reason to set it in the 90s, too, is that a version of that in 2016 would be implausible. It's hard to think of a right. Trump supporter going to Columbia's MFA program, being roommates and close friends with a Clinton supporter. Yeah. Um, it wouldn't happen. And and so this this guy just had to vote for Bob Dole, which seems the stakes on that seem much lower. Yeah, and at least he's you know I, I think he he says he voted for Clinton the previous time, so he's not a, a 
died in the wool conservative. Right. But he's he's a member of the white working class whom uh, whom the Democratic Party kind of abandoned in the nineties mm-hmm. for this centrist, moderate third way. Mm-hmm. Um, and you could just call it neoliberalism, whatever you want to call it. Right. It's the debate we're still having now. Do we nominate Sanders or Warren or Biden or Buttigieg? Right. Uh, sort of left wing, classic FDR style liberal or or middle of the road, peel away swing voters. <laughs> and uh, the fact that we haven't resolved the question shows how complicated it can be. Yeah. Um, but I think it's it's inevitable to look at this moderate move can often just turn away the people you're tr- thinking you're gonna you're gonna get because right. the Republicans in the '90s very much turned this into reframing every issue as a culture war. Yeah. Instead of talking about policies, they talked about guns and God and abortion. Murphy you know, Brown having yes. babies. And some of those things are clearly related to policy, guns and, ab- and abortion, right. obviously. But, um, you know, Trump showing up to the Daytona 500 a week or two ago is his attempt to show I'm one of you. Yeah. And there's no talk about policy. His policies are hurting almost everyone in attendance there. But he's a NASCAR fan or whatever it is, supposedly. I'm sure he's not. Uh, <laughs> but but that that's it's a smart, canny move. Um, so... That was one sort of way to look at this novel as a novel of 90s politics and the schisms that developed. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, these two guys in the close quarters in the apartment, will they, will they talk about these things? And right. they talk about it briefly, but otherwise they don't. They sort of talk around these issues. Tell me a little bit more about Stytown, where Stytown. they happen to live, where you happen to live. I happen to live there. Um, I guess I can admit to this. I was there for on and off for 14 years, and it was not really my apartment. I won't say <laughs> exactly what the situation well, was. I got away with it, but <laughs> hopefully, no one. I think there's a statute of limitations. Okay. I don't know. Anyway, this guy. I'll talk about the narrator. Yes, is illegally there in his his great aunt's rent stabilized apartment. He shouldn't be there. He could be kicked out at any moment if they catch him. So it creates this very slight tension throughout the book of will he lose this thing that is enabling him to stay in New York and possibly become a writer because his rent is so low, he can afford to sort of do odd copy editing jobs um, in his 20s as he makes his way toward being a writer. Um, but Stives in Town is a strange place. It's, if for listeners who don't know, a huge residential complex in lower Manhattan, right near the East Village. I think it's like nine blocks by four avenue blocks. I want to say 11,000 residents live there. So a little town tucked away yeah. without quite being its own neighborhood, too. Um, so a kind of nowhere's land. And I thought of it as thematically related to the idea of the 90s being this nowhere's, no man's land decade. And the narrator, who's unnamed, being this sort of no man, no nowhere man himself, um, a, a kind of anonymous place. And he himself can feel anonymously lost in it. All the buildings look exactly the same. It's easy to get physically lost in the backyard of Stives in town. There's winding pads there. I've gotten lost many times. Um, but I have a lot of fondness for the place, too. I, I'm, I can't remember the line right now, but you, in the book, you write that it's like less gritty and less yeah. exciting than... I can't, again, me underselling the book by saying it's it's not that exciting. But yes... <laughs> It's not the New York of, like, gritty junkies lying on the street. Right. It's not the New York of skyscrapers and masters of the universe. It's this sort of strange, um, lesser-seen 
blah New York that he inhabits, which is part of his problem that he himself comes from the sort of blah background of Boston suburbs, um, has nothing he thinks really to recommend him as a writer, but he maybe sort of does, but he's afraid to, I think, interrogate that about himself. Yeah. I mean, he acknowledges that his privilege means that there are fewer things available to him to write about. Yeah. Which is, you know, to update it today, then it's his upper middle class privilege. Now it's a as a white male author, you can often feel that way too. Like, what right. do I, should I even be contributing to this conversation? Maybe it's time to to shut up and let other people take the stage. Um, but if you are going to write, which I feel compelled to do still, mm-hmm. uh, it seems like, all right, one, one way to approach this is to examine your own identity and look at the aspects of it that are, if not worth you know, shouting to the world, listen to me. So, you know, <laughs> yeah. but, but let, let me criti- let me critically dissect. Shut up, everyone else. Yeah, listen to me. I think no, to critically dissect those yeah. those parts of your identity that are um, at least worthy of discussion, if not the most worthy in the world right now. Yeah, one of the most overwhelming qualities about your untitled narrator is that he is so lonely. Yeah, and which is a human condition, no matter who you yeah. are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Um, you know, you can be a white male and be lonely. You could be <laughs> something else, someone else and be lonely. It's at least this universal uh, problem that everyone can afflict everyone. I think afflicts everyone at one point or another. But he is deeply lonely. So it was we've been talking, we've been talking about his identity quite a bit. But I think of him ultimately as this um, profoundly alienated person. And I guess if it's related to some aspect of his identity, it's about his manhood that. Um, men, I think, can have this deeper loneliness because they have a harder time opening up to one another. Female mm-hmm. friendships, I've always felt, are deeper, more complicated, trickier. But women, in my experience, are very open and okay with being vulnerable to each other. It's this a guy, cliche for a bit of a reason, I, I guess. Yeah, not always. Not always the case. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. But men, especially in this era, I think had a yes. harder time doing so. Another reason it wouldn't work quite as well today that men have uh, progressed a little bit. Um, at least some, <laughs> some, yeah, all men are, are great now. Some men have have evolved, uh, yes. but in the '90s, this you know his his tragedy is that he wants to be close to this guy Billy, but Billy is not really want to be close to him in the way he wants to be close with him. Right, and talking about one's feelings, even if you're in an MFA program. Is, yeah. Is still <laughs> yeah, it's still got to be over like whiskeys and still has to be delivered with this sort of stoic um, manner that is not quite them opening up in tears to each other. But, you know, there's a reserve and, and a guardedness to the way they relate to each other. Yeah. And, and even uh, I felt for the narrator a lot when he was in the MFA part of the book, because I think there's an expectation now as someone who hosts a podcast where I talk to writers every week, that all writers are eloquent and don't sweat and um, feel comfortable uh, talking about stuff. Yeah. I'm I'm not sweating right now, (laughs) but I've not been incredibly eloquent either, which shows Ah. you semi. Uh, It is... Yes, that there's... Well, look, I I went to an MFA program, as I said. Mm Mm-hmm. To me, this is not the case for this narrator, but often the better writers were worse at social interactions. Mm. Uh, that, or at least very frequently, you could feel like, oh, well, that's that's a really special person who has a hard time 
um, expressing their specialness anywhere but on the page. Those are the writers I've often usually sort of admired most, where I'm like, oh, wow, they really transmuted their art and, and their weirdness and uniqueness into something that they couldn't do in any other way. And I've always been a little suspicious and skeptical of writers who are too socially polished and, and smooth at, at the world because I wonder, well, is this just them channeling their suaveness but not getting to anything else that's under the, under the surface? Yeah. Um, and, and I, there are so many different ways to be pretentious. Um, I, I love there's a, a point when um, one student reads in quote unquote poet voice. Yeah. Um, they go to a reading in, in somewhere in the middle of the book. And they watch a a poet, a prof, like a pr- professor poet, give a reading. You know, again, the low hanging fruit of yeah. writing world satire. I sort of like I had to have a reading there, a, a scene <laughs> setted reading. And I've seen, I've sat through too many self indulgent, pretentious readings that I, I felt like I had to do something with that. But I have no idea what you're talking. About. <laughs> <laughs> but then I, someone's pointed out to me, there's fiction writer voice, which is what I probably slip into, which is this sort of monotone not being vulnerable at all voice mm. that some writers do at least I, that's my natural i think register um so there's fiction writers can have problems too up on stage oh of course um but and i guess that's in part it can be an act of protection yeah. to put on your persona and absolutely you know. i mean i wish i were the kind of writer who relished sort of the, the public persona of being a writer uh and and that i think there are some writers out there who lap it up they like being on stage they yes. like being i'm enjoying this interview with you but you know they, they <laughs> I, there's like a nervousness shot through with it for me right there are some writers who are just absolutely comfortable maybe those are the writers again who i said are just too suave and i wouldn't really want to be like that but um you know the whole point is that your vulnerability should be expressed somewhere in the book or at least your sensitivity should be expressed in the book and I think there's some correlation between um, that sensitivity and how you express it as a person later. And I think if you put too much of it, or too little of it in the book, um, there's too little of it on, on, in, in life, too. Oh, I love that. Um, I'm going to change it up now and ask you about other books yeah. that you've been into. I'm reading right now, uh, just started, so not too far into it, Adrian Miller's In the Land of mm, Men. Yep. For a tour also of the 90s literary mm-hmm. landscape from a different perspective. Mm-hmm. She was the literary editor of Esquire, um, had worked at GQ before that. I'm just at the point where she's at Esquire. Uh, so I almost wish the book had been around when I was writing this. For research. So I could, yeah, research yeah. purposes. But I'm enjoying it a lot. Um, two other books I've loved recently. Uh, the book Cape May by Chip Cheek. Oh. I thought it was a sort of just an unputdownable, superbly crafted book about honeymooners in 1957, maybe 58, uh, on vacation in Cape May, New Jersey. There's sexual intrigue. Uh, it's just perfectly written, not a word out of place. And then could I be nepotistic? Oh, always. Why wouldn't you? My own books. No, no, <laughs> nepotism. <laughs> uh, no, my wife's book, Kate yeah. Greathead, Laura and Emma is her novel, came out two years ago, about a single mother raising her daughter on the Upper East Side in the 80s and 90s, too. So we were both working on books. Uh, hers, the very tail end, is is in the, I think, mid-90s. 
I sort of picked up the baton where she dropped it. But uh, I'm clearly biased, but a beautiful, (laughs) funny, charming, moving, sad book. Love it. Thank you so much, Teddy. Thank you, Maris. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review. And check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.